Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Stars podcast on the ongoing trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. I'm Michael O'Toole. We're coming to the end of the trial, but the final phase is anything but boring. And today we have had several major developments. But before we get to that, here are the usual terms and conditions. Mr. Hutch is on trial at the Non-Jury Special Criminal Court in Central Dublin. He is charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Airport Hotel in North Central Dublin on February the 5th, 2006. That's a charge he denies. Two men are on trial alongside him. Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy are not charged with murder. Instead, they are accused of helping a crime gang carry out the murder by providing it with cars. Now, like Mr. Hutch, they deny the charge and all three are currently on trial. Joining me to discuss the latest significant evidence in the case is Chief Reporter Paul Healy. Hello, Paul. How's it going, Mick? So another busy day today. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite the day maybe we might have expected. Uh, when we signed off yesterday, we were talking about having closing arguments in this case, and maybe that was a bit premature. Uh, of course, it's naive of me to, to, to not uh, necessarily uh, realise that the defence um, may well call witnesses and that that could go into the afternoon. That's what happened today. Um, we talked about the possibility of Jason Bonney having an alibi witness that that had been raised uh, and that is what we spent primarily most of the day on today um, was Jason Bonney's defence. Uh, and, and, but it was a fascinating day. It wasn't the day I expected, but uh, it, it was a fascinating day, to say the least. But before we go on to the, the, the actual, that, that we probably need to talk about the ANPR. Now, we did mention that yesterday, the automatic number plate recognition. And we knew that there was an issue and we knew that this was raised. And the presiding judge, Miss Tara Burns, even commented on this and Essentially, she decided that she would come with a, a, a ruling today on whether that ANPR evidence could be admitted. And there was a development in that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Miss Justice Tara Burns has come back with a decision uh, ruling this evidence inadmissible. Uh, she ultimately sided with uh, the argument made by Bernard Condon um, that effectively this evidence had not been proven. Uh, and and so uh, it, it's it's a relatively minor thing in terms of the entire case, but it's it's a portion of evidence now that will not be considered by the judges in their final determination. Uh, so that relates to number plate recognition uh, in relation to Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy uh, at a specific date and time. Um, and, and now that will not be considered. Now, there's still a bunch of CCTV evidence that will all be considered by the judges, but this specific small portion of ANPR evidence uh, will not be considered by the judges um, as evidence in this case. So that was an interesting development, I suppose, um, the first real legal victory for the defence in this case. So just, just to clarify, Paul, Bernard Condon, senior counsel, is the defence counsel for Paul Murphy. Yes, uh, he's the defence counsel for Paul Murphy and then the uh, John Fitzgerald senior counsel is defending uh, Jason Bonney. 
so they adapted they adopted the same argument. The argument was brought forward by uh, Mr. Murphy's defense team and adopted by the uh, Mr. Bonnie's, and and they ultimately won that argument and that evidence is ruled inadmissible. So that was the start this morning, and then we got into uh, the alibi witness. So you may recall at the very start of this trial, we heard that Jason Bonney had an alibi witness, and it had come about kind of rather at the 11th hour. So remember, this case goes back to 2016, but it was only in October of 2022 um, that the state was notified that Mr. Bonney had an alibi in relation to where he was on the 5th of February 2016. Um, nonetheless, um, that has been considered and uh, this witness has now been allowed to give her evidence and that dramatic evidence came today. Um, so Julie McGlynn, uh, she is a neighbour and longtime friend of Jason Bonney. She told the court that she knew uh, Jason Bonney and the family over 30 years. And she uh, was from the Donamede area and her mother was living in an address in Newbrook Avenue in Donamede. So to remind people, Jason Bonney has told the court that he was on a building site in Newbrook Avenue on the 5th of February and that he heard about the Regency Hotel incident while working on that building site. He heard about it on the radio and he says that he was there all day. Uh, the BMW X5 that he's alleged to have been driving is on CCTV footage leaving his home that morning and it's then picked up going through the city and up to the St. Vincent's GEA car park where at 2.41pm the hit team come through the alleyway and they run up to the cars and they get into the cars and there's a flat cap individual who gets into the BMW X5 could be Kevin Murray, certainly implicated that it could be Kevin Murray that got into the X5 so Jason Bonney obviously denies that he was driving that X5 um, the bombshell development that we've only learned about in the last couple of days and was further clarified today is that Jason Bonney is claiming his father was driving that vehicle south of Newbrook Avenue, but also told this witness, Julie McGlynn, uh, that he believed it was his father driving the BMW X5 uh, right up to the St. Vincent's GAA and that he was involved in the Regency incident, not him, but his father. Um now, his father, since deceased, uh, was suffering from cancer and died in 2019, the court heard. Um, so this allegation about his father, his father can't defend himself. He's no longer with us. Uh, but that's a very serious allegation, obviously, in that he told this person that it was his father uh, and not him uh, involved in this Regency incident. And Miss McGlynn essentially added to that defence today in favour of Mr. Bonnet by what she said because yeah. you, we, don't, we can't do bad location. So basically, if I'm reading this right, she said he was in Donamede uh, shortly after the Regency. Yes, so she had uh, um, uh, two encounters with Jason Bonney and an encounter with his father, she said. So around 11am in the morning, she said uh, that she was up in her mother's address uh, and that they were getting ready to have a birthday party for her son and she was setting things up. So her mother went to mass around 11 a.m. and she, ser her, she heard a knock on the door and she said that it was Willie Bonnie. So this is Jason Bonnie's father. And she said Willie was looking for her mother, uh, but her mother wasn't there, she explained. And Willie was apparently on this building site, which was directly across the road. So the building site where Jason Bonnie says he was working on with his company, Bonnie Construction, um, which was connected to his father as well, was directly across the road. It's number 47 Newbrook Avenue. Um, and so he told 
Julie allegedly uh, that he needed to use the toilet. They didn't have a t- any facilities on the building site, so Ask could use the toilet. So she let him upstairs, and she shouted up to him, "Do you want a cup of tea?" And he said he'd have the cup of tea, and she had the cup of tea with him. And then there was another knock on the door. She said, and it was Jason Bonney. So Jason Bonney comes in, and there's a conversation. Then she just described it as chit chat between the three of them before they left at around eleven thirty. She says she saw Jason Bonney going across the road to the building site, and she saw his father Willie Bonney getting into the BMW X Five across the road and driving off. So she was somewhat challenged about this later on by prosecuting counsel Sean Galan. He really grilled her on this in terms of, you know, did you, did you know how he got there? Because he saw him leaving in this BMW X5. And he had told her uh, before Jason showed up that he was waiting on Jason to get the B, uh, to, to come back in the Jeep and to take the Jeep off him. So she was quizzed on, well, how did you know? How, how did he get there? She didn't know how he got there. Her only recollection is that Jason Bonney's father told her he was waiting on Jason to come back with the BMW and he was going to make off with this. So to put a little more context into this, Bonnie, it gets complicated, but I just to give it context, uh, Bonnie has said that the BMW belonged to his father and that he'd had a fallen out with his father, but his dad was more than... Uh, he was more than willing to give it back to him if he needed it. So supposedly that's what uh, Bonnie's father said to, to this lady, Julie McGlynn, uh, that he was there to get that vehicle off him that day. And she claims she saw Willie Bonnie driving off in it. So cut to later in the day then. Uh, it, it's about 2.40pm on the 5th of February when she claims uh, she went to pick up her children from the school bus up the road. And on her way back, she says that there was a truck parked outside her house in the way. She had this annoyed her and she knew that it was Jason Bonney's truck. So she went over to this site across the road and went looking for him. She says she can remember being annoyed and, you know, because this was a, wasn't the first time that the, a vehicle was in the way of her driveway. So Jason Bonney came out, she says, was apologetic and moved the vehicle. So that's at 2 45 roughly p.m. or 2.50 p.m. So just to remind people that around about that time, this BMW X5 is picked up on CCTV footage we know uh, at the St. Vincent's GAA Club. That's around seven kilometers away from this Newbrook Avenue area. I I, I did a a very quick Google Maps search and it's in here. that Well, you can go by the Tonaglee Road or by Collins Avenue, but it's between 27 minutes and 35 minutes now that's at this time of day so i don't know what about but that's you know and we know also that effectively yes the bm the bmw was caught on cctv around st vincent's but that was after the attack wasn't it the attack was at around from memory to was it 2 30 p.m 232 roughly 2 p.m yeah. yeah yeah so 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 the timeline here if you are to believe if miss mcglynn's story is true then jason bonnie was on this building site and she had an interaction with him at the time uh, just following the murder when he's supposed to be, when the state says he's supposed to be in this BMW X5 picking up the hit team and helping them escape. And she has corroborated his claim, again, if you're to believe it, uh, that the father had driven off in the Jeep earlier in the day. Sorry, go ahead. You had something you want to say? No, so, yeah, I'm just going to say, look, there's been lots of evidence. And I know that, you know, there have been analysts and everything and people saying about, you know, CCTV, that you, we don't know who's driving the car, for example. But alibi evidence is regarded as one of the strongest pieces of evidence you can get because it's direct evidence. So in other words, the three judges 
will be able to look Miss McLean in the eye, be able to see the cut of her jib. She's been she's given her evidence. She's a, Sean Galan, senior counsel for the state, has already cross-examined her. So alibi evidence, direct evidence, is really, really, really strong. Yes, uh, and, and that's why I suppose Sean Galan, uh, the prosecuting counsel, spent a good bit of time with this witness, really uh, grilling her and drilling down on specific details of her story. So there are further elements to her story uh, wherein she says uh, that the mother of Jason Bonney, this is Greta Bonney, uh, who is now deceased, also died in 2021. She says that her she called to her mother's address in Newbrook Avenue three weeks after the 5th of February and was quite upset and was asking about what had happened that day and she wanted to know uh, what had happened. Um, and she basically told her uh, that this this story that uh, that the husband, her husband and Jason Bonney's father drove off in the BMW X5 that day and she apparently accepted and thanked her for telling her that, basically. She had told uh miss mcglynn's mother allegedly that there had been a massive row between jason bonnie and his father in relation to the jeep and the fact that the jeep had just been seized by gardy investigating the regency hotel murder of david byrne so she was asked you know did you not ask for more detail on this and what exactly they were arguing about and she said no she didn't ask questions that's the extent of what she was told and then she was also further grilled on, well, why didn't you have, you know, conversation with Jason Bonney about what you'd seen and heard? And, you know, you, there were no conversations between you about this really at all. Despite her being, she's by her own admission, 30 or 40 times in and out of Jason Bonney's home uh, after 2016. Um, but... She, not to make this exhaustive, she said she had a conversation in Dunamead Shopping Centre with him about it, where he said that his father had ruined his life, and then a subsequent conversation uh, in, a, in a private home where he had implicated his father and said that, he, he, that the Jeep was used. So Jason Bonney allegedly told her that the Jeep was used in the Regency Hotel incident and implicated his father as being the one who drove um, the vehicle that day. Just and one quick said, question. Go ahead, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Paul. Just one quick question. Obviously, the 5th of February, is we remember it as crime reporters, so it's stuck in our memory. But am I am I correct in saying that Miss McGlynn remembered the day because it was uh, uh, her child's birthday? It was her child's birthday, exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, she was challenged on, you know, do you not remember the, the significance of the day in that hearing about the Regency Hotel shooting? She said she couldn't remember when she heard about it. Obviously, she did at some point, but she said she doesn't watch the news, so... She doesn't exactly recall whether she heard about the Regency on that day. Her priority was about having her child's birthday party arranged. That's what she said. So um, she, she was really challenged. And, and ultimately, Mr. Galan put it to her that she was lying. He, 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 he actually, the exact quote is, I have to put it to you that you're not telling the truth. Um, and, and he says, although he, he didn't provide evidential basis for her but i imagine it may be provided but he says from his understanding uh, that jason bonnie's father willie was on the 5th of february having lunch with his daughter and his son-in-law uh, for a four-hour period so the whereabouts of jason bonnie's father uh, allegedly it, this is what he was doing at the time and if that is to believed he says then uh, miss mcglynn's story simply isn't true um, but she insisted that her, her story is true uh, and and when it came to 
why she didn't come forward sooner. She said that she did cooperate with Jason Bonney's legal team when she was contacted in October of 2022 at the very start of this trial. Um, but, it, you know, it was suggested to her that, well, you didn't really come forward uh, until Jason Bonney's father and mother had died. Uh, and they are a crucial part of this story. And you didn't come, you know, she didn't, she didn't, uh, she didn't say that was the reason why she basically said that she felt the matter had been dealt with and didn't expect it to uh, progress and again, she was challenged on that because she would have known in April 2021 that her friend Jason Bonney had just been charged, yet she still didn't come forward until October of that year. Now, Paul, may I ask, I just want to ask you, Paul, uh, just from the outside perspective, and I don't want, we won't talk about, it's not for us to, to speak on Miss McGlynn's credibility, but just what's your observation? How did she stand up on the stand? Did she, was she confident? What was her demeanour? Yeah, she was very confident and um, I'm going to say it, but it's up to the judges to decide whether she her evidence is believable, you know, and it's her word. Ultimately, um, that is it. It is her word. Um, but uh, and, and, and she was challenged quite a bit on, on her word, um, but she was very confident and had answers to every question. I wouldn't describe her as a nervous witness, no. So um, moving on from that, really what I thought was the bombshell of the day uh, was was the second witness. And, and, and that is uh, that is something that caused a, a huge, I suppose, controversy in the room because effectively it turned out that this witness, the prosecution had not been notified of uh, the content of what he was going to say. And, and, and that created a huge uh, issue that, uh, that has ultimately... Um, meant that this afternoon uh, things were kind of cut short and, and prosecuting counsel Sean Glan needed time to consider uh, what this witness said on the stand. But we did get uh, to hear his story. Um, and I, I'm just going to get... It's it's Peter Tyrrell. So uh, Peter Tyrrell was called to the stand and we heard uh, that he was involved in a leisure centre in a, in a boxing club that was being run by Jason Bonney and his father in Donamede. And... What is interesting about this is that he said that he wasn't getting on with Jason Bonney and his father uh, at the time in 2016 and that there had been a civil case, a high court case that he had had against them in relation to the ownership of this boxing club. So these were not individuals that he was getting along with, although he knew them well because he had been involved in this leisure incident, uh, sorry, this leisure, <laughs> this leisure centre, this boxing club with them. Um, but what's interesting about his evidence is that earlier in the trial, his wife gave evidence about CCTV that was obtained by Gardy from their house um, in, in Gracefield Road. And what this CCTV shows is the BMW X5 passing by their house um, at around 2.40 p.m. Uh, on the 5th of February when the husband's car is pulling into the driveway and you can see the BMW passing by. And the bombshell evidence today was um, that Mr. Tyrrell says that he recognised that Jeep and he can remember going around the Artane roundabout just before this footage is captured and this Jeep driving fast right up behind him. And he recognised the Jeep and he recognised the person driving the Jeep as being Jason Bonney's father, Willie Bonney, who he knew well. And just for context, that's after the shooting at the Reeds. So that's the, the basically the getaway journey. Yes, allegedly. Yes. So 
I mean, that's a huge uh, allegation. And uh, as I say, this seemed to catch the prosecution by surprise today. They were not aware of the content of what this witness was going to say and asked him to leave the room. Um, took some time to consider it. And when the judges came back, um, Mr. Galan said that he still wouldn't have been in a position to deal with it and asked essentially for the evening and, and to deal with this tomorrow. Hopefully it will be dealt with. Miss Justice Tara Burns uh, did speak to uh, John Fitzgerald, senior counsel defending Bonnie, um, effectively telling him that he should have uh, notified the court of this in advance. Um, so it's unclear really where that's going to go. Uh, you know, look, this witness has now been heard. So uh, it's interesting to see what way will the prosecution consider that. But what what's interesting about this witness is is that he states that he didn't have any relationship or any goodwill with Mr. Bonnie or his father at that point in time. Um, yet he says that he recognised Jason Bonnie's father driving uh, the Jeep um, on the day, on the 5th of February, at a very crucial time. Um, so, yeah, that's very interesting to see where that's going to go. And that's where we left it today. Um, but that that was bombshell evidence for sure and, and, and not something um, that anybody expected to hear. Extremely significant. Just one other small thing, Paul. I, I understand it, it emerged that Mr. Hutch is not going to give evidence in his defence. Yeah, sorry, that emerged early. Uh, not that this is unexpected news. Uh, yes, that Jerry Hutch is not going to take the stand uh, and that uh, his defence counsel, Brendan Gretton, uh, doesn't intend on calling any witnesses uh, in the case. So we have the alibi witness uh, in relation to Jason Bonney and then uh, in relation to Paul Murphy, I don't believe there are any witnesses. So I know we flagged that there were supposed to be closing speeches today. That now will probably happen tomorrow, save another uh, bombshell. So uh, a couple of things were flagged in relation to that. Um, Brendan Grehan, uh, senior counsel for Mr. Hutch, said that uh, he had intended to have his speech finished by Thursday. Um, but he now has another matter before the Supreme Court. So he has indicated that maybe to deal with that, he might go last. So he might do his speech on Friday and somebody else will do their speech on Thursday. But we're going to see where we are. So I, what's most likely to happen is obviously the prosecution, uh, prosecuting counsel, um, Fiona Murphy, will give her speech. And um, then it's a, it's a toss up as to who goes next in terms of the defense. So it just by the sounds of things, I mean, I know we spoke about this yesterday. It depends how long each senior counsel but there are effectively four senior counsel aren't there three defense one prosecution who will be given who will be given speeches the closing speeches so you're talking f four closing speeches today what today's tuesday mm, could be it could be maybe very maybe monday but anyway look we we are we're, we're very near to the end but it, it is interesting and look i i've covered um Lots and lots of murder trials, and it's very and lots of lots of other serious you know, trials, and it's very rare for the defendant to give evidence on their own behalf. That that I think the defendant usually, uh, what's the word, takes advice or you know from the the defense. So it's not uncommon for a defend a defendant to take the stand for not to take the stand. In other words, more often than not, they don't take the stand. Okay, that was a day and a half. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, not the day we expected, but uh, the, there was a lot in that in, in terms of Jason Bonney's defence and, and a huge amount for the prosecution and the state to uh, to consider. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what position Mr. Galan takes in the morning uh, in relation to that evidence. Very good.
Okay, I think that's us. Uh, does Kieran Bradley want to come in? Do you want to ask some questions this evening, Kieran? As if by audio magic, yes, I will pop in. Hello, lads. Um, Hi, Kieran. So I have a few for you. Uh, lovely to hear your dulcet tones conversing again. Uh, all right, so the first one we have, and it's probably the timeliest question. Uh, most of these came through via DM on Twitter, so we'll keep them anonymous as per. Um, without the AMPR evidence, do they have much else to go on with regard to Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy? Now, I, I realize we've kind of tacitly come up against this aspects of this question uh, during the pod, but maybe that's something you guys want to talk about. What, what I will say before before Paul, because I know Paul has done it, but what I will say is, and again, Miss McGlynn's evidence, from an outside perspective, from an unarmed, you know, this my perspective, Miss McGlynn's evidence is very strong because it's direct evidence. And alibi evidence is very strong. So I think it can't be stressed or overstressed how important that is in the case. But anyway, Paul, what what do you think? It did did that means the 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 state, the prosecution, yeah. I mean there's a there there there's a lot there in terms of the CCTV. I mean the ANPR, as I said earlier, was a very small portion of the evidence. There is CCTV footage in relation to the movements of the BMW X five in Port Marnock and in various other locations right up to St. Vincent's GA. It's the same with uh, Paul Murphy's taxi um, and and his own movements. He's picked up on CCTV in a number of locations close to the Regency Hotel as well at a petrol station, etc. Um, and then in, in terms of their interviews, all of that uh, and, and their explanations for where they were, all that ev- evidence is still in there. The ANPR was a very small small portion of this case so there still is a huge um chunk of evidence in relation to both of them but just to to stress and we and I, I know i did say this earlier but i'll say it again direct evidence alibi evidence from miss mcglynn it's you know it's very very strong evidence because it's that person speaking to the three judges so it this was a significant day for the defence, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. You get the feeling uh, from people I speak to that they're a little less uh, across the Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy aspect of this case. We've kind of gone into the weeds so much with the the Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdle stuff. Um, Okay, speaking of uh, the man himself, um, this is a question that came through. Uh, Let's say Jerry Hutch is found not guilty. Is it a jailable offence to hold and intend to travel on an illegally obtained Moldovan passport, as was the case when he was arrested in Frangarola? And then the, the questioner actually also um, clarifies that it might not have been Moldova, but Mick? It, it, well, it's an offence to use a false passport. I, now, this is off the cuff. I think it's the offence is in the country of the passport. So say there was an Iranian passport. You know, it's an, an offence under Iranian law. So... I, I, you know, I'm reading into what the, the listener is saying, you know, if he's acquitted of this, what will happen to him? We've got to remember that, and we broke this, a couple of days before the trial, Jerry Hutch was taken out of Wheatfield Prison, brought to Ronanstown Garda Station and questioned on suspicion of directing a crime gang. We know that that's about the, the, the investigation into a corrupt former Garda uh, who has been jailed. So that's a very significant operation. And that, um, that investigation, I mean, that, you know, the, the the questioning is always the last stage because they have to put all the allegations at the suspect and then the file goes to the director of public prosecutions, really. So, you know, if if there is an acquittal in this case, Mr. Hutch still has problems in that. Okay, very good. Um, the final one we had here uh, for the moment, uh, just a question regarding Dowdle's phone. 
Is there any reason why they don't use the data from the phone itself, e.g. the location from a Google or Apple account, rather than from the masts? Surely the, just the additional GPS would give a more accurate reading. That's a good technical question. We don't know. I don't know. Uh, do they? Is it a privacy thing? No, I don't know. I, um, I'm just now. This is just off the top of my head. But I'm just wondering. Did I know that there has been some evidence about this in other in relation to other people? Did Mr. Dowdell give the guards the, the PIN number so they could analyze the phone? So I just wonder what data is available remotely without the phone. I, I would know. You know, you can you plug your phone in, and the guards have this thing called XRY, which reads computer phones and downloads everything. But with an Apple phone, if it's uh, uh, pin locked, you can't get access to it. And we know that. Uh, Is that true? Because I actually thought it was. I remember seeing on a couple of programs that they they, they were refused access to a phone and, and they could get it off. But maybe that was a wasn't no, an Apple one. No. no, no. If you remember, several years ago there was a, a horror uh, attack in it was at San Bernardo in America near California. And it was, I think it was a gay nightclub that was shot oh, up yes, by yeah. Islamic extremists. Do you remember? And the, the two people, that was a man and a woman, and they, they, were, they were killed. And the killers were killed, right? And the police over there got their iPhones, right? I think it was the FBI, actually. And they couldn't access them because they didn't have the PIN numbers. And it went all the way to Apple and everything. And again, I had to do research this because of the, the novel I was writing, because there's a phone seized in it. But essentially... There are Israeli companies that specialize in breaking hard, jailbreaking or really hard breaking the pin, but it, it costs, you know, a couple hundred grand for each one. So this is just off the top of my head. I don't know what Mr. Dowdell did with this phone if you give it to him, but I think you, you would really have to have the phone itself to get that level of knowledge about the phone. But I, I, look, I, 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 you, you know, I'm slightly caught in the hop, but you can't access the phone without the pin code. You, you, it's almost impossible. So I think that may have been a factor in it. Yeah, I, I know that um, we did hear, I think in relation to Patrick Dowdall's phone, that they had GPS data because it was actually mentioned in the case um, in specifically in relation to one spot that they were in, that they had GPS, GPS data uh, in relation to his phone. So clearly GPS did form part of the evidence, but uh, they, they didn't rely upon it or didn't refer to it much. I think it was only referred to once as as um gps location so who knows i mean we we don't know what's going on with the legal teams and we don't know why they put things forward and you know we'll keep on i know it's our mantra but it's up to them so we, no, not a clue essentially i'm just Jeez, that was a lot of words to say not a clue it. bloody hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i should have said that at the start somebody once told me you can you can tell somebody you don't know or you can show them and i think i've just shown people <laughs> that i don't know yeah it's good uh, okay, well, um, there, there's one last one here, uh, which, you know, for, in full disclosure, I'm not really sure how much we can add, but I can ask. Um, yesterday, Jason Bonney said he had fallen out with his dad and hadn't spoken to him in years. Why then was his dad waiting for him at the, and the Jeep at Judy McGlynn's mother's house? So again, I, I suspect this isn't something we can really speculate on too much, but if you guys have anything in particular. If you're to believe Julie McGlynn's story, Jason Bonney's father said that he was there to get the car off him. That's why. So regardless of their dispute or the fact that they hadn't spoken, uh, the, uh, the allegation is that it was the father's car and the father was coming to collect it off the son. That's the reason. They don't necessarily have to have been on friendly terms, I suppose, for that to happen. True. Well, uh, all of my questions have been answered. Thank you. Uh, so that's another day of Shattered Lives 
folklore uh, put to bed. So um, yeah, thanks a million lads uh, once again for your for your time and efforts. And um, we will speak to you guys uh, later in the week. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>